Hi, everyone. I hope you're all enjoying the special content we've been featuring. This week, we're excited to introduce you to a really special podcast, Ruby Rosa, by Man Enough's very own guest host, Christopher Rivas. In Ruby Rosa, Christopher Rivas explores the life of Porfirio Ruby Rosa, the man who inspired the character of James Bond. Besides being a Dominican diplomat, Ruby Rosa was a polo champion, a race car driver, a pilot, a womanizer, a playboy, and a cultural icon. The character and life of Ruby Rosa reveals so much about the dichotomy of masculinity across cultures and generations, while Christopher Rivas and expert guests work to unravel the mysteries of a man that was so infatuating to the men and women of his time. We're sure you'll enjoy this episode as much as we did. Witness Docs from Stitcher. Pero oye, ¿qué es un tigre? You can't mess with a tigre because, you know, a tigre will come back to bite you. Tigre, a tiger. It is widely understood that in Dominican life, an element of tigerismo is something you need to succeed. He's sneaky. He's like a cat. A tigre is fast, fearless, fortunate. He has street smarts, swagger. You see this character embodied in Dominican music and Dominican movies. A tigre emerges well from nearly any situation. He twists misfortune and spins a happy ending even out of the most outrageous of circumstances. Someone who gets away with everything, who doesn't have any guidelines, just goes for it. Doesn't matter who's in the way, I'm just going to pave them down. Like, A tigre is able to climb to unlikely heights, and should he fall, being feline always lands on his feet. He always moves to advantage. Tigre has also sexual connotation. A tiger can move with sensuality or violence. Like a, like a lover boy kind of piece of shit. And in order to be a, a perfect tigre, you have to be a big fallow, you know? A big, you know, penis. And Ruby? He was the epitome of a Dominican tigre. Whether you were a, an 80-something Dominican man or whether you were a 15-or-something Dominican man, all of them aspired to be like Ruberosa, to be the tigre, to be macho. It's still something that people aspire to, to the detriment of Dominican women. Tigre is this essential defining characteristic of some sort of ideal Dominican man. It's impossible to talk about Ruby and not talk about what it means to be a tigre. It came up with almost everyone I talked to about him, but it's not just Ruby, it's Trujillo too. Trujillo was a tigre because whatever Trujillo says, it was done. A tigre can get away with just about almost anything. Adultery, violence, a voracious appetite for sex, greed, cruelty. All of this comes with the Tigre territory. But what does it cost us? You see, I too know this tiger, intimately. There are things I love about this tiger. There are also things I hate about this tiger. And there are definitely things I fear. Today we are talking all things Tigerissimo, how it affects Ruby and the people around him, and as I look closer at the Tigre and Ruby, I start to know the tiger in my own life, too. I'm Christopher Rivas, 
and this is Ruby Rosa, episode six, Big Tigre Energy. Here we go. To be considered masculine, to demonstrate or perform your masculinity, it's about seducing beautiful women and sexually satisfying them. That's the lover archetype. This is Dr. Lisa Funnel again. You know, Dr. 007. She's not talking about Ruby here. She's talking about Bond. The James Bond books were written in the same era that Ruby was traveling the world putting out that BTE, Big Tigre Energy. Fleming was likely inspired by Ruby himself. So if you want to learn more about Tigerismo, James Bond is a good place to start. So I would say Bond from the Connery era through the Pierce Brosnan era, um, it's based on the heroic model or archetype that's presented in the work of Ian Fleming. This is where you get the gentleman hero, um, but it's based on the lover stereotype. Nowhere is this behavior more obvious for Bond than in how he treats women. Watching these films as a kid, I remember Bond running around in a tuxedo, shooting guns, driving fast cars, and always, always getting the girl. Who is Bond attracted to? Like, what attracts a Bond? It's interesting because I feel as though Bond has some of the strongest connections with the women who challenge him the most. Um, When I think about Tracy DiVincenzo in Honor Majesty's Secret Service, I love the way that Bond looks at Diana Riggs' uh, character driving the car when there's a whole bunch of cars crashing into each other, uh, and she's driving the, the, the muscle car and making her way through. Looks like it hit the rush out. And you can see he's just like, wow, I'm in love with this woman. This woman's badass, right? Um, I think that he likes women who are capable, competent, smart, and who can stand on their own. And I think there's another really great example with Vesper Lind. And you look, and Daniel Craig, look, Daniel Craig plays Bond to perfection in the train sequence when he's talking and meeting Vesper Lynn and she is literally skewering him. My guess is you didn't come from money and your school friends never let you forget it. Which means you were at that school by the grace of someone else's charity, hence the chip on your shoulder. And you can see him just being enamored and impressed by her wit and her intellect and how she can just hold her own. We start falling in love with her too because of that strength. A regular macho man likes a quiet woman, but a tigre loves the chase. He seeks worthy prey. And so I actually think that strength is what attracts Bond, like when it comes to his deepest connections. The women characters in Bond films are iconic, but few of them stick around and develop as characters. Sure, you've got Judi Dench's M in the Daniel Craig movies, But almost every other woman is just there for one film, to be a villain or maybe a sidekick, but most often, a love interest. When you read about Bond or you talk about Bond, almost all these characters get lumped into one term, Bond girls. Referring to professional women as girls is problematic. It infantilizes them. Referring to them as Bond girls also shows that their identity is is not autonomous. They're only being defined, at least in popular imagination, by their relationship with Bond, even though many of them have their own goals, their own abilities, and so forth. But the term Bond girls isn't the only problem. We also have to consider the female characters' names. 
So you look at somebody like Dr. Holly Goodhead, who is an astrophysicist, right? I mean, a terrible name. And it's very difficult, again, when he meets her or just talks to her to every time you hear goodhead <laughs> or dr goodhead you think sex and sexuality right but it's true many of the lead female characters in bond films are not these damsels in distress they are badass super strong brilliant astrophysicists sometimes with mad skills in karate or handling a firearm but then all of that gets instantly minimized and turned into a joke by their sexualized names my name is pussy galore How am I supposed to take her seriously? This is a woman pilot leading a group of women pilots, and she's capable and competent. And yet, you look at her name, and you look at how Bond refers to her by her first name. And I tell you, my students, when I teach them, have asked me, like, Dr. Fauna, like, do we have to call her the P word? And so I tell my students, be consistent. If you refer to him as Bond, you can refer to her as Galore. And they always are very happy at that point where they're like, I don't have to use the P word in public. (laughs) And I'm like, we don't have to. But I think there also has to be balance in the way that we talk and we treat all characters the same in terms of how we represent them. When I rewatch old Bond films now, some of the stuff I see is just cringy. It's not just the names, but the way Bond treats women, insults them, touches them without asking. And I see now that it's not just a character thing for Bond. No, it's cultural. And it didn't start with Ruby or with the DR. This diguerismo, it's widespread. It's global. Now we call it toxic masculinity or being a playboy, a chauvinist, a fuckboy, whatever. But as a little kid running around in my tidy whities watching these movies, I never noticed this stuff. It just was who Bond was, and it was cool. I had no idea that these movies were essentially conditioning my young brain to think about women the way they did back in the 1940s and 50s, back when Bond was created, back when Ruby was a world-famous Latin lover. Why did so many women want to sleep with Ruby? Well, I, I, you know, unfortunately, I was born a man. Y'all remember Taki Theodorakopoulos? This is Ruby's BFF from back in the day. I don't know. I I never asked him what his secret is. I tried to imitate his mannerisms sometimes, but I don't think it worked as well as uh, they did for him. I believe that if you make a woman laugh, you will eventually get her. I believe that Ruby had a great sense of humor, made fun of himself, charmed a woman, paid tremendous compliments, And eventually, that's what works. Now, there are some women who want to see the French tortured poet. La Ronde. L'auteur? Well, that's full of shit. He might get them, but they'd get rid of him very quickly. The sad poet who cries on the woman's shoulder might get lucky once in a while, but no. So that's all I can tell you. I'm sorry. I don't know. (laughs) I resent that. I played the French poet in Laurent, and he was sexy. Sad, but sexy, okay? But Taki's taking the old-school point of view that women prefer a man's man who is charming and confident, a tigre. But let's get a quick reality check on Ruby. Uh, Ruby Rosa was a love, of course, for four years, and with George's permission, because he said a sexual attraction will only take two years, but it took four years. This is Jaja Gabor, a long-time on-again and off-again girlfriend of Ruby's. Jaja was a badass. 
She was an actress and kind of the perfect counterpart to Ruby. She was also famous for all the elite men she had relationships with over the years, like Conrad Hilton of the hotel chain, actor George Sanders. She even married a prince. And she was known for her crushing sense of humor. She was just like many, many of the women Bond was attracted to. Smart, sexy, powerful in her own right. Perfect for a tigre. The day Ruby met Jaja, he left a note in her hotel room that read, A la más bella de las mujeres, to the most beautiful of women. That was his signature move. Normally it was accompanied by a single red rose, but for Jaja, Jaja got a room full of roses. Sounds charming, right? Well, one day in January 1954, Jaja held a press conference while wearing an elegant animal print dress, a pearl necklace, and a fabric eye patch. While grinning ear to ear, she told the press that the eye patch was because Ruby had given her a black eye. Here she is years later, talking about it in a TV interview. The next guy, Ruby, what's his name? No, Ruby didn't treat me bad. Ruby treated me beautifully. Ruby. But he used to beat you around. Well, a little bit, but I deserved it. Sure, <laughs> I don't like it, but you know what happened when I had the black eye? Marlene Dietrich came over and said to me, my dear, this man must really love you. Oh, you women are wild. <laughs> when a man is very jealous of you and smacks you, that means he loves you. Y'all, I've been in love. A lot. And I'm pretty positive that's not how it works. This clip of Jaja is wild to me. I don't like a smack in the kisser, but if a man gets loses his temper so much over being so jealous, that is so exciting. And Jaja is not the only woman who seems to have truly loved Ruby despite this toxic behavior. Remember Doris Duke? She's the woman who paid off Ruby's second wife with a million dollars. Well, on their wedding day, Ruby was so drunk that he could barely stand. And Doris reportedly once walked in on Ruby having sex with another woman. Not so charming. Still, when she died, Doris only had two photos next to her bed. One of her boyfriend at the time, and one of Ruby. Here's something Ruby once said to a friend about his marriage to Doris. What I did is better than most people do. They go out with a girl from a good family, they take all her money, and then they leave her. The difference with me is that I marry her, give her the best time in all the world, and when I leave her, she is richer than ever before. It always stands out to me just how genuinely in love with Ruby so many women seem to be, and how they don't say negative things about him in the press. Many of them stay friends with him even when their romance ends. Why? I was always sincere. I listened intently, always maintaining eye contact. I rarely spoke of myself, and that is important. When I said to a woman, you are the light of my life, I want to know every detail about you. What champagne do you love? Do you sleep in the nude? What is your favorite book? Share with me what is in your heart and soul so that I may be whole. I meant it. Oof. Those are Ruby's own words. And they sound a little over the top. But here's how a friend of his described him once. Quote, He made each woman feel that she was the most important thing in the world. Ruby would stay focused on the woman he was talking to, even if the most beautiful woman in the world walked in the room. It's hard for me to tease out the good things from the bad in Ruby. 
When I first read about him hitting women, I hated it. I still hate it. I'm conflicted that I feel so drawn to someone so capable of that kind of violence. But maybe Ruby was capable of being two things at once. A tigre, violent, pursuing women at every turn, and also a gentler animal. Honest, upfront about who he was, present with women in a way they truly appreciated. Isabella Wall says she feels complicated about this part of Ruby, too. She blames some of his behavior on the times he lived in. It was common of the era because I think there was a generation that thought that women wanted to be pushed and shoved around, you know, that they liked it. That was that time that a guy would just, you know, grab you by the waist and, you know, and that was flattering. Back then, this kind of misogyny was a cultural norm, though, of course, there were definitely women who refused to accept this norm. And even today, there's still work to do on that front. Women in the Dominican Republic have come a long way, but still, there's a lot of domestic abuse. We're one of the top countries with domestic abuse because the parameters that exist today as to women's rights and other things have not, they haven't gotten the memo. Men there are still pouring acid on women's faces or, you know, killing them if they don't want to have sex with them. You know, that stuff's still happening in the 21st century in the Dominican Republic. According to data from the UN, the Dominican Republic has the second highest rate of femicide in Latin America. The second highest rate of men murdering women. There are reports of police torturing and raping sex workers as a form of punishment. And it's hard to measure the full scope of the problem since so much of it goes unrecorded. Our Dominican history expert, Milagros Record, specializes in studying violence against women. She says that on a visit to the DR just last year, in 2021, she saw firsthand the way women are treated as less than. I was driving. And just by the fact that I was driving, you know, like motorita, you know, the motorcycle and the, the other guy, they were calling me names that you can't even imagine. There is that hate against women, you know? Hmm. And that hate is actually, is part of what Rubirosa was, what Trujillo was. Women are objects. They are no subjects. Women are objects. Bond is the subject. Ruby is the subject. Atigere is the subject. But what would happen if the objects in Ruby's life suddenly got to take up their own space? Tell their own stories? What would the women Ruby hurt say about how he impacted them? I haven't been able to speak with any of the women Ruby married or slept with, but... I did get to speak with someone affected by Ruby's actions firsthand. Ruby Rosa destroyed my parents' marriage. What does the uh, name Porfirio Rubirosa mean to you? Porfirio Rubirosa. Yeah. Hmm. Well, 
it means to me playboy, a romance addict, certainly, probably a sex addict. And Ruby Rosa destroyed my, my parents' marriage. This is Patrick Reynolds, the son of Marianne and R.J. Reynolds Jr. Patrick's dad, R.J., was crazy rich. His family ran a huge tobacco empire. Patrick is no longer part of the family business. He actually founded an organization to help people stop smoking, tobaccofree.org. Check it out. When Patrick was just three years old, his mother Marianne had an affair with Ruby. This affair led to his parents' divorce in 1952. I was angry. It destroyed her marriage, and I didn't see my father again until I was nine, and I hardly knew my dad. And that really had a profound, deep impact on me and caused me a lot of confusion. I mean, it really screwed me over. It destroyed our family. Patrick is in his 70s now. Neither of Patrick's parents are alive, but he knows the story of how Ruby got intertwined in their marriage. Patrick interviewed his mom for a book he wrote about his family's history. I said, Mom, why'd you have the affair with Ruby Rosa? And, you know, she liked to take a drink or two. And five o'clock was always the cocktail hour. And at this point in the evening, she'd had a couple of drinks. She said, look, Patrick, I was standing on the deck of one of the largest private yachts in the world. I had furs. I was dropped dead gorgeous. I had the most important jewelry. I had designer gowns. And every night I was a prisoner on that boat because your father, R.J. Reynolds Jr., was passed out from drink. And I was a prisoner because I could not go ashore without my husband. Marianne was in the same circles as Ruby. She and R.J. would take their yacht to the French Riviera or to the glamorous capitals of Europe. Finally, when Ruby Rosa and his buddy, the Prince Ali Khan, called and said, Marianne, Marianne, come to dinner, come to dinner, come to the casino. She said, by God, I went ashore. And he had quite a reputation. All the women knew that this guy was a stud and good in bed. And he pursued her. He sent her the red rose, la mas bella de mujeres, to the most beautiful of women. Ruby's signature move again. And he followed her from city to city. She said, he followed me to Rome. He followed me, you know. And I should have asked her, how, how did he know where you were going? <laughs> but finally in Paris, uh, she succumbed to his charms. Patrick's father eventually found out about Ruby and Marianne's fling. He filed for divorce and named Ruby as the reason for their split. Ruby denied the affair to the press, but it didn't matter. The story was scandalous, and so it was widely reported on. Ruby Rosa was just one player, and I don't blame him. I don't blame my mother. I don't blame my father. It's, it's really all of it taken together. I feel sad. Um... A little angry, more sad than angry, for for the, the havoc that um, these people wreaked on their lives by 
making such bad choices. That's what can happen when a tigre gets out of his cage. He eats marriages for breakfast. He breaks up families. He breaks hearts. A tigre's love affairs might make for good scenes in the movies, but in real life, there's a morning after. And there are people who have to keep on living. Remember that quote about Ruby making any woman he was with feel like the only woman in the world? I wonder if that's how he made Marianne Reynolds feel. Maybe that's why she risked her marriage to be with him. And even though the impact of her actions was deep for Patrick, he said one last thing about Marianne and Ruby that caught my ear. She made her choice. She wanted that experience. She wanted that. And I'm going to honor that in my mother. Marianne wanted that experience. And here's where the script flips a little bit, where Ruby goes from being the subject, the digere pursuing his prey, to being objectified. An experience worth pursuing. Marty Wall shared this story he came across in his research. Ruby finds himself in an elevator with some female socialite, and uh, she approaches him and actually tries to grope him uh, in the elevator to see if it's as big as everybody says it is. And uh, I just kind of thought, you know, it just people were always trying to just, you know, be with him and get with him and chase him and find out what he's got and how do I get that? He was known for having the largest, you know what. Here's Ruby's pal Taki again. In fact, all the pepper mills were called Ruby in, in the restaurants. And the good restaurants, you'd never ask for a pepper mill. You said, Ellie Ruby Rose, and they used to bring the pepper mill. It was a joke. The pepper mill. You know, like the big wooden pepper grinder thing. And the joke lives on to this day. So many articles about Ruby mention the pepper grinder thing. But the pepper grinder is just the beginning. Doris Duke described Ruby's member in her biography. Side note, her biographer was her godson. Very awkward to talk about your lover's thing in that context. But anyway, here is what she said. Quote, It was the most magnificent penis that I have ever seen. Six inches in circumference, much like that of the last foot of a Louisville slugger baseball bat, with the consistency of a not completely inflated volleyball. The tabloids had plenty of fun with nicknames for Ruby, too. In Paris, newspapers called him Mr. Toujours Prey, Mr. Everready. Ruby couldn't even escape all this attention by going home to the DR. Chico, in the Dominican Republic, Trujillo got in charge of spreading the word of his endurance, of how he could go for hours and not ejaculate. That's right. Even the DR's leader, Trujillo, was spreading the word about Ruby's sexual prowess. In fact, he wanted to profit off of it. The DR manufactured a Trujillo-approved drink supplement called Pegapalo. It was made of tree bark and herbs. I think of it like a liquid Viagra. An American magazine ran a photo of Ruby next to the product, claiming that he drank it every day and credited it for his virility. After that article, I received hundreds of letters from tired men and disillusioned women. Everyone wanted me to urgently provide them with the elixir. This is the point where I start to be like, yo, chill out, give this man a break. Especially after I learned that Ruby's ever-readiness was actually a medical issue. Here's Marty. We learned that he likely had priapism, which made it very, very difficult for him to ejaculate. 
Priapism is basically what the Viagra commercials warn you about. If you have an erection lasting more than four hours, it's a problem. Perhaps due to his priapism, Ruby was also sterile. At least that's what we think. He never had any children. Is this why women were so excited to be with him? You know, he was safe. Safe to play with. All the fun without the possibility of a dark-skinned consequence running around nine months later. And if this was the kind of experience women wanted, well, Ruby didn't exactly shy away from being objectified. Of all of the talents he has and of all of the uh, abilities that he has exploited, that's the one that got him into all of the high places and to meet all of the rich people. And it was probably, you know, part of his demise as well. It was not always a good thing. I mean, although it, it kind of sounds sexy, the other side of that coin is, is what kind of satisfaction are you getting from lovemaking if you're not having an orgasm? So I think, you know, him realizing that he would put all the energy into giving the other person pleasure created this Latin lover legend that, you know, lives today. Ruby, you were as much of an object to women as it appears they were to you. When I think about you being with so many women, I am exhausted. Both physically exhausted and emotionally. I mean, to keep up this act of the macho playboy Mr. Everready over and over again, it seems like too much work. Did you ever feel ashamed? Were you angry that despite all the things you did, traveling the world as a diplomat, playing polo, racing cars, making it out of your small hometown, speaking five languages, that despite all this, the thing the world remembers most about you is the pepper grinder. Sometimes I imagine you sitting alone, miserable, worried. You know you're being forgotten. You know you're running out of time. You know you can leave nothing behind. The mask is melting and you're terrified. I say mask because I think inside you weren't all digere. You were softer. Empty even. Empty in the moments when the world saw you so full of life. Alone. A paper tiger. In his memoirs, Ruby doesn't write much about feeling alone or tired. It's mostly about all the action and the good times. But occasionally, things leak through the page, especially when he writes about women and love. Here's one passage about the end of his relationship with his second wife, Danielle Derieu. It is sad to see your other half, your echo, sleep away from you. I still loved her. I realize in that heartbreaking final dialogue just how lonely I made her feel, how little respect I'd really given her. I think, no, I'm sure that was the first time my heart had been broken and I was to blame. Once he goes, it's gone. There is no getting back that exhilaration or the comforts of sharing souls. Like a champagne bottle dropped on the sidewalk, there is no way to glue a love back together. And there is no mending of the heartache other than time. Once 
I felt that ache, that emptiness. I felt even worse, knowing exactly what she was feeling. I too know this loneliness. Don't you? Those moments of silence where nothing is around but fear. Which is really just my own self, my own thoughts. Me, when all the distractions are gone. And I don't know about you, but sometimes I do everything to avoid these moments. I keep my mind and my life busy with all kinds of things, just so I don't have to meet myself. A lot of Ruby's life feels really sad to me, personally. Uh, like he's running away from something, uh, like he can't be alone. What do you think about that? Was Ruby a sad man? Yeah, I think that he's partially maybe a little manic. That I think when when we talk about somebody that isn't comfortable alone, you know, that there is a there is a narcissism level there that is like a drug addict not getting their drug. So I feel that he was sad in that way because he never really found true love and maybe eventually um not unlike a beautiful woman losing her beauty because of age realizes that none of these things were because people liked him it's because he was ruby or he could give you a wild orgasm or whatever whatever it was i think he was so distracted for most of his life that he didn't he didn't feel the sadness but in those moments of silence in those moments of no party and no race car and no polo fans. I think he was really sad. When I was a kid idolizing James Bond, I thought his Tigerismo was cool, you know, something to look up to. Same thing when I was a young man in college and I read about Ruby, I thought, damn, here is a ladies' man, a Dominican ladies' man, no less. I wanted to be that. Yeah, I wanted to be wanted. But now, I'm a little older, and I have looked a little closer. And I do not like everything I see. In Ruby, in James Bond, or in myself. Yeah, there are some parts of the tiger, Tigre, that serve me. The determination, the hustle, the ability to land on my feet in a tough situation. But then there are the other parts of that mindset which are downright harmful. Harmful to others and harmful to myself. Some parts don't serve any of us anymore. And so, it's time to get honest. Time for me to look the Tigre in the eyes and kill what is no longer needed. How do you two feel about my love life? Ooh. I got a lot to say. Go ahead, William. <laughs> Shit gets real. That's next time. Ruby Rosa is a production of Witness Docs from Stitcher. It's created by me, Christopher Rivas, and I'm also an executive producer. Abigail Keel is our senior producer. Kevin Tidmarsh is our producer. Our story editor is the magical John Delore. Our technical director is Casey Holford. Camille Stanley is the executive producer of Witness Docs. Readings of Ruby's memoir performed by Victor Almansar. 
Workhouse Media Inc. is also a contributing producer to this podcast, as are executive producers Amelia Baker, Mackenzie Monroe, and Ari Anderson. Thanks, y'all. Original music for this podcast is composed and performed by Wilson Torres on the drums, Yaisan Villamard on the keys, and Marcos Varela plucking the bass. Our theme song is composed by Allison Layton Brown. Get in touch, y'all. We want to know your questions, your thoughts, and stories. So send them to rubirosa at stitcher.com. And do us a favor. Subscribe to the show. Write reviews. Tell your friends. Tell your family. We love the help. We love you. Peace, y'all.